On this week's episode, we welcome Maryland Governor Wes Moore. Are we accepting failure as a standard in education? I, I will never accept failure as a standard. And that's why I'm calling for greater accountability and greater transparency. There, there's nothing more important to the future of our state than making sure that we have kids who can read and kids who can do math. If our students aren't able to do the basics of reading and mathematics and really getting to the basics of what our education, supposed to, education system is supposed to do, then we're not going to be competitive and we as a state will continue to fall behind other states. And so there has to be a greater level of accountability and a greater level of transparency because that's going to produce a greater result, which is what we all are aiming for and what we all hope for. And where does that accountability lie? Well, I think the accountability lies with all of us. Uh, you know, we, have, we all have a shared responsibility to be able to make sure that our children are being prepared for the future. And that includes everyone from the superintendent to local jurisdictions, to parents and guardians, to village elders, to educators, to faith leaders, to the governor. Everybody must be in the game. We can't pick and choose who's going to be involved in our children's education because whether you're talking about educators, parents, or the students themselves, everybody's gonna have a have to role to play and that's why we all have to be engaged. You know, as a parent, um, as you away from your role as governor and you talk to your wife about why some kids learn and others don't, what is the pathway from the parent to the classroom, the teachers and the administrator, what is the best pathway for them to learn and to learn well, to really have a chance at the American dream? You know, I, um, I was a kid who uh, wasn't reading at grade level when I was in third grade. I was a kid who, um, I had handcuffs on my wrists by the time I was 11. I was sent away to a military school because of my behavior when I was 13. And, um, and sometimes people will say to me, they're like, well, isn't it great that you got sent away? Isn't it great that you got sent away to military school? And, and I always say, what happened to me wasn't being physically transported. What happened to me wasn't getting picked up and moved around. Um, what happened to me was I found myself surrounded by people. And first starting with my mom and my, my grandparents and leading to this amazing string of role models and teachers and coaches and ministers and, uh, and people who taught me that the world was bigger than what was just directly in front of me. But they did it together. My mom wasn't at odds with my teachers. My teachers were not at odds with my minister. They worked together because they had a shared goal, which was how can we help this young boy become a man of honor and a man of integrity? And so I think when we think about what it is and what is it gonna take for all of our children, and again, not just some, all of our children, to be able to have the kind of opportunities that we want for all of our children to have, it means that every single one of us must embrace our personal responsibility in order to make that happen. That we have to 
make this pathway for all of our children mean something. And we have to give them an opportunity to be able to see it for themselves. If we do that, we're going to get the kind of results that we're looking for. So, so what you're speaking of is structure. Yes. But many of the parents today who have kids in the classroom are kids themselves. And often what the kids repeat are the examples at home. Obviously, you understand the pathway to learning. But what about those that never have the, exam ever the example of learning, of reading, of writing, of going to the library, of being respectful in the classroom? We can't leave them behind. Because if we leave them behind, that is going to hurt our entire society. Um, we have so many children in our communities, in our society right now, that are coming up in conditions that they're not responsible for. They were born into that. That we have children that were born into circumstances that we would not wish upon our worst enemies. And so it does become our collective responsibility to be each other's brothers and sisters keepers. But, and teachers, but teachers would say often, and while many people would agree on your point, that sometimes that lack of structure and respect, sometimes they're injured they're slapped, they are cousted, so much to the point there's so much violence where the teachers themselves don't want to be in the classroom because it's no longer an environment to teach. That's right. But I think part of what we have to do is making sure that we're creating the kind of educational environments that make it a hospitable environment for, for educators. One thing I believe in deeply, uh, you know, when we passed the Educator Shortage Act this year, one of the first bills that I introduced and one of the first bills that I signed about how are we encouraging and incentivizing people to raise their hand, to teach. One of the biggest things we learned was this, is that there are certain things you can do in terms of financial incentives, right? That you can provide bonuses for teachers and that type of thing. But you cannot just stop there. This is not just about just financial incentives. How are you making the environment better? How are you making it a more hospitable environment for people to want to teach inside of some of the most challenging urban or rural But how do you address the violence in the school, those kids with that consistent behavior? Well, you, you have to be able to start where, where the ecosystem of the violence oftentimes comes from, and that's the neighborhoods and that's the households, where, where what you are seeing oftentimes inside of school, that is, that is the, the, the end result. But how do we, and I understand what you're saying, but how do we address the fact that they're in the classroom and they're very disruptive? How do we create an environment for those that are there to learn? Well, well you, you have to make sure that if you, have, if you have disruptive entities within classrooms, communities, et cetera, that they have to be dealt with because they're gonna need, they're gonna need specific support. How do you, how do you, what is your definition of dealt with? Well, I think you have to find ways of being able to remove and provide consistent supports. For, and remove them, them from that environment. Because, because it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just about what is the impact that that uh, that that disruption is having on everyone around them, right? It's also about there are going to be specific needs that individuals are going to have to have. And we have to be prepared to provide specific needs for individuals. Uh, so this isn't just about the idea of, well, it's, it's hurting everyone around them. That, that cry for help has got to be dealt with with help you and support. Do you think the classrooms in the school itself need more resource officers? 
Yeah, I, I think you, you, uh, the, the school resource officers on the local jurisdictions, where the local jurisdictions you know, have, and you look in the state of Maryland, where we have SROs and, and school resource officers who are dealing with situations on the local level. And I think local jurisdictions have the authority to be able to be able to do that. But I think that local jurisdictions need to have the authority to be able to put the specific pieces in place that are going to be most beneficial and also most targeted for their own individual so local jurisdiction. So you're saying they should be allowed to do their jobs? Yeah, I, I think the local jurisdictions have a responsibility to do their jobs. You know, you know um, and I don't want to misinterpret your quote. Um, when you were elected, you made a statement um, to the teachers union that they had a friend in Maryland. And sometimes the teachers union agenda come at the expense of the child because sometimes it's a one size fit all. And you as a parent knows that no kid learns the same. You've got to find a way to make that kid enthusiastic about education, enthusiastic about learning. And so it requires a lot of attention. So I don't want to interpret that to mean that they had a friend in you at the expense of the parent and the student. And I just want you to explain what you meant by that. No, I, and how do you balance the two? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's exactly right, where our, our educators, they do have a friend in me, but so do our parents and so do our students. I, I, don't, I don't give way to the false choice. You know, and, and one thing I always say is, listen, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm new to politics. You know, I've, I, I didn't come from a political family. I don't come from a political background. Uh, I, I was, an, was, an, was an army officer, led soldiers in combat. I, I ran a business. I ran one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in this country. And, and oftentimes when I would hear people make this dichotomy about are you with educators or are you with parents, the only people I was hearing that from were politicians. Because when I was talking with families, none of them talked like that. That's not how we came up. And so do our educators know that they have me as a friend? Yeah, they do. And they know they have, they have my ear and they know that this is, as we've heard from educators in, in, in Maryland, this is the first time in eight years that educators have actually met with the governor. Define, define for us your, in terms of policy, in terms of an advocacy, what does it mean when the governor says, I'm a friend of parents and children in the classroom? It means that they are always gonna have my ear and they're always gonna have my heart. It means that when, whether, whether we are speaking with a parent in Westminster or a parent in West Baltimore, that you know that you have a governor who takes your, who hears you, who takes your, your situation seriously and is going to invest in your future and in the future of your child. And I see that as a prime responsibility for why I'm in this seat. But what, 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 is, what happens though, if you've given superintendents and principals and administrators an opportunity to provide for the students? Because I mean, it's not lost on Baltimore, that they have 23 schools, and not one kid is proficient in math, in English, in reading. That is certainly an indictment of leadership. When does it get to the point when you've given people so many opportunities to deliver for the students and the parents, where the governor says, someone needs to be removed, something has to change? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in accountability, and I always have been my entire career. Accountability and transparency. And, you know, there is, there, is, there is nobody who is more infuriated about the idea that we have children who are not getting the education that they deserve 
and that we have a constitutional responsibility to be able to provide than me. And so I know that, that when we look at a situation that we have now, where not every child in our state is getting the same educational, is getting the same educational supports. And we have to address that. No one is okay with this. And I, and I say to include the, the superintendent, but no one is okay with this. And I demand greater accountability. I demand better results. I demand more transparency. And I know the state of Maryland demands more accountability and, and transparency. If that does not well. happen, heads will roll. Oh, I, absolutely. We need to have people who are going to move and take this seriously. The, 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 the educational success of our, of, our, of our children cannot be compromised because everything about our future relies on that. And if you, and if you look at how, if you look at the, the investments that we have made in public education, if you look at the people who I have had the opportunity in just our first months to appoint to the board, these are education reformers. These are people who believe in accountability. I want to come back to that because that's going to lead me to a conversation about childry and school choice. Obviously, there are many parents out of desperation that support choice in education. Because um, the last thing a parent wants to see is that their child is not able to learn in progress in the educational apparatus. And, and why do you think parochial schools and Catholic school schools they don't have any of the issues with teacher disrespect. Uh, they operate on far less money and they produce far better results. Um, and they also have some of the best teachers. Why can't we have that in public education? Well, I, I think we, we can have that in public education. I think we must demand it. We must demand high quality public schools, period and full stop. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's not just the reason that I have, uh, you know, that I, I support uh, high quality charter schools, high quality community schools, because these are, these are public schools. Uh, and it's also the reason that, uh, that I have shown that you are not going to find a bigger champion for our public schools, for public schools of all forms and all types for all of our kids than what you're seeing with our administration. So, you, so that is included the parochial school choice. You see that as a part public public education. Oh, I, I have a laser focus on making sure that we have a world-class public school education, a public school system in this state, because nothing in our state is going to move unless we have a world-class public school system. And that will include community schools, that will include charter schools, that will include the fact that we have to make investments in our schools. You know, if you look at our first budget, the first budget we laid out, we made historic investments in our public school system. Over $8 billion went towards public schools of what, all what, types. What, of that money, because I know people um, toss out figures, yeah. but I want you to, for the listener to understand how that money is impacting education. Yeah, well, you know, before, before I ran for governor, I ran one of the largest poverty-fighting organizations in this country. And, and we could tell you to the dollar where, what was going to be the return on that. I believe deeply in measurements of accountability. And that this is not just about, oh, how are we, what are we going to fund? But are there actually going to be deliverable results for the funding that we're able to, that we're able to push forward? And how are you able to show that that was the best investment? And so when you look at the investments that we made to do things that are proven that are working, for example, things like making sure that we can start school earlier, where 80% of brain development happens in a child by the time that child is five years old. So why we have school systems that are starting school children at, at five makes absolutely no sense. So much of brain development has already happened by that point. 
the fact that we made historic investments in things like career technical education and job, re and job training and, and, and trade programs and apprenticeship programs. Because I tell you, I'm proud of the fact that we have some of the best four-year schools in the country, in the state of Maryland. But I wanna be very clear, we are going to end this myth that every single one of our students have to attend one of them in order to be economically successful. But it sounds as though you're also saying for those that maybe college is not their pathway, technical schools and learning other skills where they can create opportunities and have real skills in the job market. That's exactly right. And I want them to know that it is not a deficiency or a deficit if you choose not to go to a four-year school. You know, listen, I, I think about my own path, right? I was a non-traditional student. I, 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 at 17 years old, I joined the Army. I first started my collegiate career at a two-year college. In fact, that's, that's the ring that I wear from my two-year college. And, and, I, and I tell people, I was not the traditional student, but because I was offered pathways to do, to make my life what it is that I wanted to make of it, I was able to now sit in the governor's conference room as the 63rd governor of the state and have this conversation with you as a two-year college graduate and as a person who joined the army when I was 17 years old, right? So I wanna make sure that all of our students, every single one of them, have a pathway to economic success and that attending a four-year school does not have to be a prerequisite or something that every single student needs to do in order to be successful. You know, th this is the sadness of, of this question. It does seem disproportionately this education disaster impacts brown children more than anyone else. And you look at a place like Baltimore, which should be a crown jewel. The superintendent is black. The city councils, the mayor, I mean, it's run by what they would say, a chocolate city. But yet, these kids are failing. If these were, let's say, as we would say to old Jim Crow, we would expect the Ku Klux Klan to put this kind of program in place, and continue this kind of program, to keep people ignorant, put them behind, and always dependent on the government, but it's not. We spent so much, so many years in the civil rights movement electing people. Is it less about race now and more about change in the bureaucracy? Because it's these kids, and not just in Baltimore, but all across the country, these black and brown kids are being destroyed through the educational system. They're just not, the, the, the administrators are just not accountable. And you and Don would not allow that to happen to your son and daughter as a parent. And these are our children. Yes. They're our children and we need to treat them as such. And so the reason, so when we talk about everything that needs to be done and creating an environment, both the environment in the house, the environment in the neighborhood, and the environment in the schools that every single one of our children need and deserve to be successful, that's what we need to be prepared to invest in, in every single aspect. So when people say to me, they're like, well, how does, how does poverty and inequality show itself. And I tell people in every way, in the air people are breathing, in the water they're drinking, we still have children who cannot drink from the water fountains in their schools, from the transportation assets they have or don't have, the fact that it sometimes will take students, it'll take students over an hour and a half to go two miles on public transportation. The reason why we made investments in things like the red line and bringing back east-west transit inside of Baltimore. 
the reason that we made historic investments in things like housing supports, because the number one driver of poverty in the state of Maryland is housing insecurity. The reason that we can focus on being able to have full-on wraparound supports for our children, over $100 million invested in behavioral and mental health supports. Because when people say, how does this show itself? The challenge is, is that inequality and poverty does not pick and choose. It's like water. It floods everywhere where there is a hole. And that's how we have to address it. And the reason that we have to invest in every single aspect of our children's future is because the things that are hurting their future is not picking and choosing. It's hitting them in every single way. You know, Chaudhry, the superintendent, I read a lot of Project Baltimore's investigations, not only on Chaudhry, but educational system here in Baltimore. And I know he's not your appointee. He was appointed by Governor Hogan. You only have four appointees on the board. And, um, but, if there's a clear example of someone, and this is not my opinion, this is talking to many people preparing for this sit down with you. It's a classic example that he should, his contract should not be renewed. Whether you have say so over that or not, his policies have failed the students. Well, and I'd say, and he, he actually wasn't appointed by, by, by my predecessor because the governor doesn't appoint, which is part of the problem. The governor doesn't appoint the school superintendent, nor does the school superintendent report to the governor. That the school superintendent reports to two different boards, which are comprised of different members, even though only one of the boards has higher, higher authority for the superintendent. So, so I can't even say that my predecessor appointed him because he did not. This is an independent body. And part of my frustration is this idea that I believe in accountability. I need to know who is responsible. And when I ask a question, I'm not asking for five people to give me an answer. Who is the person that I need to get that answer from? Doesn't it start with the titular head, the superintendent? Well, I, I think the superintendent, absolutely. And the superintendent has an incredibly important job to be able to really foster and bring all these systems together. And, and listen, I, I, uh, the superintendent is a, is a, is a brilliant man. And the superintendent. Uh, what did, do you What do you base brilliance brilliance on? When well, you look I, at the I, I think of Baltimore I, I, no, I think I think he's a, he's a very talented educator. Maybe he should be brilliant somewhere else. <laughs> I think I think he's a very talented talented educator. Uh, I also talented know, I, based I, on his results. No, I'm, I'm as an as an educator. Okay, but what I also know is this: the results we have right now in the state of Maryland, they are unsatisfactory. It's good to hear you say that. And let, me, let me ask you a pointed question. If you had to make the decision, if it were your decision alone, though it's not, to renew his contract, would you? Well, it's, 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 to your point, it's not my decision. But if it and were your decision, I'm asking a different question. If it were your decision, well, would I, you renew his contract? You just said yeah. accountability, transparency is critical. And these, res these results are not where they need to be, and no one can argue that they are. And I would argue no one can argue to include the superintendent. What I also, and, and what I also know is this though, that this is not about personality. No. This is about performance. The performance should speak for itself. How, how difficult is it for you? And you, like you said, you're not a politician. You're not even the favorite person of Maryland when you ran for governor. Right. 
but you want by the will of the people. How difficult is it for you to get the legislature in this state to do something about education and change this dismal trajectory? Well, the, the legislature has an important role to play in all of this. The legislature is the one who, create, who created the structure that we have for education. Uh, and, and I will work with the legislature and I will work with anybody who is committed to making sure that our kids can get a, a better education and making sure that we can get a world-class education for every single one of our students. I'll work with anybody who has that as their focus and know that that's gonna be my focus as well and we're working on a working partnership. And I enjoy working with the legislature on this. I also know that we have to work with the legislature in order to make this happen. And we have gotta make it a priority because we cannot have a, a 21st century economy that's moving if we do not have a 21st century education system that is preparing our students for those type of results. If you look at what's happening right now in Maryland's economy, where our economy is falling behind other states. That if you look at economic growth that's happened in our economy in the state of Maryland over the past, from, from 2018 to 2022, our economy has grown by 0.3%. It's basically the same size as it was four years ago. Pennsylvania's economy, our neighbor, their economy is $22 billion larger. Mm. The national economy has grown by 7.5% over that same time period while we have grown by 0.3. We are falling behind. It sounds as though you're going to change this. 100%. And that's why I ran for governor. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.